welcome. Uh, my name is, according to this, is um, Chris Moore, and um, I'm moderator this evening. Uh, welcome to the Word Christchurch event. It's good to have you all here this evening. A um, little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we would like to thank our major funders for this evening's event, the Christchurch City Council, Creative New Zealand, the Rata Foundation, um, and tonight's event is being presented in association with the New Zealand Festival of Writers and Readers. Um, I am bound to tell you, as Cantabrians, you will remember this probably embedded in your heads, in the event of a seismic shock, not originating with either the author or the book, um, just keep calm and the staff will, well, read a chapter of the book and uh, the staff will direct you to the exits and so on and so forth. Um, this evening's guest uh, has the unique, I think fairly unique, or unique distinction of being a writer whose first novel um, was met with a rapturous response, by and large. Um, and I, I quote here, a cunningly crafted narrative, a tour de force, a crowning achievement, a novel of glorious, capacious humanity. My favourite, though, is a frolicsome novel. I have rarely read a frolicsome novel, but I have now. I've, um, don't knowingly frolic that much yeah. myself, but what the hell. So it, it is with great pleasure that I would like us to welcome uh, Francis Spufford to Christchurch. And uh, welcome, Francis. Thank you. This is your first novel. You wrote... How many... Yeah, technically. Um, <laughs> this is, ridiculously, a slightly more complicated question than it should be. Um, because I wrote a book earlier about Russia in the 1950s and 60s called Red Plenty, which was a kind of documentary novel, halfway between fiction and, and non-fiction. Um, but it did have dialogue in it and characters, some fictional. Um, its first words were, this is not a novel. Um, but it was, I wasn't believed. Um, and among the people I wasn't believed by were the book's American publisher, um, who published it as a novel, although it was shelved as history in Britain, which means that either I've written two first novels or I started writing novels with my second novel. I think that's... Yeah, anyway, bear with me, though. <laughs> now, you came to the novel by way of... This is of, definitely a novel. Yeah. yeah. By way of, of a series of, of, of uh, non-fiction books, I exclude Red, uh, Red Plenty. Um, the subjects are absolutely wondrously sort of eclectic, from English relationship with ice, very topical, um, just from what Francis just told me coming in, um, to a book about the Christian faith in yep. the 21st century. Yes. Delightfully eclectic. The, there is basically the, the, the mystery here is very easily solved. I write very slowly. And by the time I've got to the end of the book I'm working on, um, I'm always desperately keen to be interested in something else. <laughs> Preferably something as different as possible. So the next book is always about the tempting thing I could just see out of the corner of my eye while I was doing the last book. Um, but I do like writing books which ideally nobody has 
quite seen the possibility of beforehand. I like doing things that other people haven't thought of. Um, sometimes they haven't thought of doing them because um, any sensible person would see that they were a very bad idea, which is why I wrote a riveting novel about, so, or not possibly not a novel, about Soviet economic planning. <laughs> um, it had, it's the only sort of novel that has ever been about Soviet economic planning, but it did have jokes. <laughs> um, by way of a, a sort of rather belated introduction, you uh, are the son of a social historian yes. and an economist, yep. which is a wonderful mix. Yes. I have to say, childhood must have been filled with ideas. And it was, um, and filled also with a kind of frank sense that the, the world was bursting with interesting stuff. I never had that sense that, that there, were, there were too few things to think about. It was always the opposite. There was always a longer queue of fascinating things just kind of littering, littering the landscape and more things than you could ever have time to look at. Um, and my parents both talked their heads off um, and interrupted each other constantly, making kind of, yes, but, hand movements, um, um, which I've kind of inherited. So um, it was actually, it was, a very, it was a very good education, both in, in following, following your interest wherever it led you and in learning to raise your voice enough to interrupt in turn and have a chance to kind of, you know, get your word in. You were a child that asked questions all the time? To, to the when point the... Of, of, of making teachers despair as, I, as <laughs> I, I was the little bugger at the back who ruined the lesson plan. Um, <laughs> Which is a good thing for a I, writer. I, I, I think so, but... Um... After you studied English literature at Cambridge, yep. Trinity Hall... Um, you then took on the job, it's got the most wonderful description, Chief Publisher's Reader at Chateau and Windows. You read to the publisher during morning tea, or was I, this... If only. I would have loved to have sort of performed reading. <laughs> it is a truth universally acknowledged. Um, no. Um, but, it, but not much less bizarre and old-fashioned than that. I got in just at the very last gasp of old-fashioned, gentlemanly British publishing. Um, although my boss was Carmen Khalil, who was neither old-fashioned nor, nor a gentleman. Um, but, but I went to work in this tall, old-fashioned townhouse in, on, a, on a London square, and they put me in an attic with a gigantic manual typewriter about, about this big. You had to press the keys really hard <laughs> down. And um, passed me an endless series of, um, of novels to read, and I had to write a one-page report on each of them, which was in some ways my dream job, because as a child I, I didn't long to grow up to be a writer. I wanted to be a professional reader, like being a taster in a chocolate factory. Um, um, I really hope they didn't keep any of my reports, because I was 22 and knew nothing and I managed to turn down quite a large number of books that later became bestsellers. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and not coincidentally, perhaps the publisher was quite soon taken over by an international conglomerate. So, there we go. <laughs> yeah. You now teach? I do. Um, I, I, I spent about 15 years being, a, being um, entirely a freelance writer which is great so long as it's just you and you can um, live on lentil soup if you haven't earned any money that month but when parenthood arrives you really do have to do something a bit more stable and predictable than that um, and I found I, I enjoyed teaching writing very much I have I have extremely nice colleagues and students from whom in the traditional way I have learned a great deal and one of the reasons why I have finally dared to become a, a fiction writer. Um, a fiction writer with no ifs and buts, just 
completely fictional fiction writer, is that um, my students lent me the courage. And also I grew ashamed of having given them so much advice about how to write novels. Um, and I really thought I'd better start taking it. Mm. Um, it was quite good advice, I think. It just turned out to be very difficult to, <laughs> to take, even from myself. Before we walked on stage, uh, you were talking about or comparing books and words to paper flowers. Would yep. you like, could you repeat, because it was such a marvellous analogy. I was, I was remembering that when I was little in England, you could buy these packets of um, Japanese paper flowers, um, which were nothing much to look at, little sort of very, very compressed paper pellets, and you drop them in water, and very slowly they would expand into these kind of beautiful, drifting, multicoloured multicolored flowers um, and it occurred to me as a child that reading was like that as well you had to provide a kind of a quiet and receptive mind which was like the glass of water and then you would you would drop into it this little paper construction and extraordinary things would unfold from it if you were patient enough to to let it happen mm. Mm. Can I just briefly, before we get on to the, the novel, you wrote a book called Unapologetic. Mm. And this, explain to the audience, well, this was a book about your faith or...? Indirect, well, no, no fairly directly as well. I, it was a book written from frustration at the moment when when the god delusion was sweeping all before it at least in england and i suspect all over the planet um because it seemed to me to be a book which reduced religion to a series of kind of a sort of imitation science a series of dodgy propositions about how the universe worked and that was so remote from from what faith felt like from the inside, both both to me and to any to any other believer I had ever talked to, I I thought that that, that the the answers to Richard Dawkins, which which took him at his own valuation and had the argument on him, on his terms, as if it was an abstract argument about whether God existed or not, were missing the point. And what was needed was a book which would. Um, preferably with jokes, um, would would take the argument and move it over to a place which was more recognisably connected to what faith feels like from the inside and that um, there ought to be a book which wouldn't try to convert the reader um, but which would do the job of making belief recognisable to people who didn't share it so that you ideally you'd understand that it was it was an one answer to a real recognizable human problem and that people didn't do it because they were superstitious or mad or ignorant um they did it because there are some human needs which which faith actually serves and not ridiculous or contemptible ones either um and I didn't want to be the one who wrote this particular book. Um, and I, while I was working on my previous book, it kind of formed in the corner of my eye. And I thought, I, come on, somebody. Um, this book needs to exist. Um, and then I, I, without quite letting myself know what I was doing, I experimentally wrote the first chapter, thinking, well, it ought to go kind of like this. Um, and then what would follow would be a second chapter, which would be um, kind of like that. Um, and by the time I'd written the third chapter, I had to break the news to myself that I was really writing, <laughs> writing the book. Um, um, probably the most nerve-wracking thing I've, I've written, um, given that the, you know, it, was, it was not a good-tempered argument that was going on between between faith and atheism then um, but actually it was 
it was received on the whole with remarkably little hostility, despite the jokes. Um, and kind of did what I hoped it would do in terms of you know, not changing people's minds, but perhaps getting them to see that even in the kind of the enlightened enlightened 21st century world religion did not just belong in a kind of zoo of weird things but was just human normal whether you whether you share it or not mm. yeah because it is a time when if you like civilized discourse is under threat it's an endangered mm. creature isn't it and yet here were you patiently and calmly presenting. It wasn't that patient or calm. It was quite cross in some ways. Um, one of I the problems one of the problems cross. with getting from I do do cross. One of the problems with getting from chapter one to chapter two um, was that I needed to I needed to change mood from from really quite cross and really quite rude to to something gentler and more and more reflective. Um, I eventually ended up doing a literary event um, on a faraway Scottish island with with Richard Dawkins. Um, and it felt as if I was breaking some fundamental writer's code to be rude about a fellow writer's book in front of him. Um, because you just don't do that. Um, um, but there he was sitting in the front row, about there, and there was me saying, this is one of those rare books which makes people who read it stupider. <laughs> so, um, so I think, right, not that sweet or nice or patient, yes? Um, I, I have met Richard Dawkins. Have you? <laughs> I think you're very brave, actually. I have to say. He didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't engage at all. He gave his, his bog-standard... God delusion on tour speech, um, and because it was the Outer Hebrides on an island famous for its fierce Presbyterians, I had assumed, I had assumed that I would be speaking to an audience of extremely dour people wearing tweed who would <laughs> stare at him like this. Um, um, instead of which, he got every single atheist in the Outer Hebrides. Um, um, and when we got to the questions. Um, he got his first question was this stammering young man who went, Professor Dawkins, I would just like to say that you are my idol. Um, so I can't really say I changed minds very significantly that day. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. Um, I think I'm lowering the tone here. Can we ask me something very serious? Yeah, Go on, quickly. Quickly. Let us turn to the to the question at the heart of this evening is this marvellous book. The cover is, even the cover, you can look at the cover for hours actually. Forget what's inside. Just, uh, just look at the cover. It's, it slight, is slight descent from, yeah. from, from over here. Um, I, I read it outside on a, one of those golden hot Christchurch summer days and I was mesmerised because it sort of glittered and sparkled. And then I turned inside and I found words that glittered and sparkled. It is a joyous book and I suspect it was a joy to write. Am I right? It was a joy to write. It was um it was it was it was a hard working pleasure because it, it involved getting inside a, a kind of um this sort of elaborate theatrical long ago literary voice which is not my natural speaking voice um, and then trying to do with it kind of all of the emotional work I wanted the novel to do and and feeling my way in was was not straightforward but once it was going the different parts of it slotted together in a way that was really really satisfying um, like like a kind of a jigsaw puzzle in which all the pieces seem to be falling so that they just join um, mm. as they should. Um, mm. 
it is, I don't know, I'm now writing another novel which, which I'm not getting that sensation with at all, so maybe that's a piece of once-in-a-lifetime luck. <laughs> you have said, you set this book for those of you who have hopefully yet to read it. Um, it's set in New York, 1745-6. Six. Um, a young man, an enigma, a human enigma, arrives in New York in this place that is on the fringes of the unknown, really. Now, you have said that, if I may quote you, since all that remains of the place I evoked in the book is a street plan and a metal railing, I feel that I must point out that I made it all up, which is a wonderfully... Modest way of saying... It wasn't that modest. I was in the process of receiving a prize for evoking the spirit of a place. And since all the other disappointed people who hadn't got the prize and were on the shortlist had actually written about places that existed, <laughs> I, I felt that it was necessary to say... To say um, <clears throat> um, fiction. Um, but what drew me to, to New York at this point was its tininess. Um, there were only about... 7,000 people in the, the city of New York. Essentially a large village down at the very, very bottom end of Manhattan Island. Um, and as a place, it was satisfyingly the reverse of virtually everything we associate with, with New York now. It was tiny instead of huge. It was inward turned and rather suspicious rather than being kind of cosmopolitan and open to the world. It was pious in a kind of defensively Protestant way and very frightened of evil Jesuits, whereas it's now one of the most secular cities on the planet. Um, And not very ethnically complicated. There were about a 1,000 slaves among those 7,000 people, and the rest of them divided between English settlers and, and, and Dutch ones, who were still speaking Dutch, though you know, increasingly rustily. And I thought you could do this lovely backwards version of the story about the about the young man who comes to New York seeking his, seeking his fortune, um, in which he had come from the big city, London, which at that point was the biggest city in, in Europe, and had literally 100 times as many people as, as New York. Um, um, and instead of being out of his depth because he'd come from the countryside and they were terribly sophisticated. He would be out of his depth because he had all these city reflexes. Um, he would expect that thing you get in cities, which is anonymity, where you have a conversation with one lot of people and then you find some more strangers and you have a different conversation and it doesn't connect up. Whereas the place that, that my protagonist, Mr. Smith, suspicious name, has arrived has arrived is somewhere where everybody knows everybody um, and the whole thing kind of twangs with gossip like a kind of a harp in the wind. Um, it's about somebody who expects, who has city reflexes, who finds themselves in a, in a kind of Jane Austen-sized village. Yeah. Lionised by some, treated with absolute suspicion. Well, others. he's turned up with a piece of, with a piece of paper um, a bill of exchange for a thousand pounds, which is a fortune in 1746, which is either worth nothing if it's a fraud or is worth so much that it causes really significant economic problems, not just to the merchant he's trying to cash it with, but to the whole economy of this, of this, this very small city, which is extremely short of ready money of all kinds Mm. and is making do with a a mad mixture of objects including really really unreliable paper money um (laughs) to 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 conduct its business life with Um, never touch road island no 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 because because all right 
this is what comes of having an economic historian for one of your parents and being a bit of a nerd. Um, I was fascinated by discovering that all 13 of the American colonies had 13 different independently floating versions of the pound, all worth different amounts against the pound sterling, um, with your rock-hard, high-value pound from Maryland or Virginia, backed by tobacco, and your incredibly inflated, worthless pound from from Rhode Island, not backed by anything. Um, So that um, there were... There was about a Virginia pound traded at about... This is terribly dull, isn't it? Should I stop? No? All right. I don't think so, but I'm (laughs) I'm trying to be polite. You get about one Virginia pound for a pound sterling and about 40 Rhode Island pounds for a pound sterling. So if you're a stranger and someone gives you your change in Rhode Island paper money, they are ripping you off. Um, And Mr. Smith does not know this to begin with. In addition to to its fragility and its tightness, New York was an intensely politicised sort of place. I mean... It's 30 years before the American Revolution, and at this point, they are convinced of their own enormous loyalism. They, they, are, they are patriotically royalist, um, and, um, and very resentful of, the, of their governor, but expressing it in terms of their undying devotion to King George II. And with hindsight, I knew that everybody reading the book would have hindsight. You can tell that there are the fault lines there which, will, which are leading towards 1776, but it's still a generation away, and nobody knows what's, what's going to happen. So, again, village politics where everybody knows everybody. Mr. Smith walks into a face-off between, um, between... Governor Clinton, a real man not related to any later Clintons, um, who was hapless in the extreme and who, um, upon arriving in, um, in New York, was talked by the Chief Justice of New York into, you know, he, he said it would make a lovely gesture of trust, Governor, if you gave the power to vote your salary over to the Assembly. And the Governor went, that's a good idea, I want them to like me. As a result of which he didn't get paid for the first six years of his tenure because, um, and there was no budget for his government at all. Um, everybody is sitting in different places and not expecting the future that is, that is coming. But you can see that already this particular colonial society is, is pulling strongly away from, um, from what London thinks is a is a good idea. Mm-hmm. I guess this, this, this sort of patriotic fervour climaxes with the Guy Fawkes Eve celebration. I was extremely surprised to find that the, that the American colonies celebrated yeah. Guy Fawkes Night um, as a festival of anti-Catholic hatred known, yeah. as, known as Pope Day, um, in which as well as burning Guy Fawkes, they would also burn the Pope um, and um, and and the young pretender because they just had a terrible fright about Bonnie Prince Charlie the previous the previous year, um, um, and yeah, November the fifth was a kind of feast of misrule, um, very drunken, very destructive, with mobs of of, of prentices on on the streets, um, and and my protagonist turns up in New York on. November the 1st and presents his bill of exchange which has to be settled um, after 60 days I think Um, um, and the merchant who he's presented it to wants to check but it takes about five weeks to get a message across the Atlantic and then another five weeks to get it back again so he can't check Mr. Smith's bona fides until about the point where the bill is due for payment. And that gives me the time scale of the book. It runs from the beginning of November to Christmas, um, during which time nobody knows whether, whether Smith is a, is, a, is a fraud or a rich man. Mm. Um, and he manages to 
to trip over virtually everything that's going on in the colony <laughs> over those five or, five or six weeks. I was writing, I hope, not just a novel about the 18th century, but also an 18th century novel, 18th century in manner. Um, because I was very drawn to the way that right back at the beginning of, of the novel, nobody knew what the rules were supposed to be yet. They had, in particular, they hadn't got good-mannered in a Victorian way. There were also some things they hadn't learned how to do yet. But they didn't think that you had to choose between... Um, serious intentions and and low pleasures so all sorts of things which we would think of belonged in completely different kinds of books could in an 18th century novel all be stuck in together um which i found i wanted too so i could write a book that i hope was serious about the politics and serious about the characterization but which also contained um um a love story, um, a mystery, um, a trial scene, a duel, a ball, a rooftop chase, um, only 40 or 50 feet up because that's how high the rooftops of Manhattan are at this point, but still. Um, um, what have I missed out? Um, a certain amount of, a certain amount of, of, of surprisingly bone-crunching violence, a certain amount of surprisingly rude sex since... The Victorians haven't happened yet, and they don't know that you're not allowed to do that. Um, what else have I missed out? Yes, I mean, and, and <laughs> jokes. Um, and basically everything, a mass of incompatible pleasures all going on at the same time. Or not incompatible, because 18th century people didn't think you had to choose between, no. between seriousness and fun. Mm. How difficult was it? Because, I mean, you, it, it's a bow towards authors like, like um, uh, the great 18th century authors. Um, how difficult was it to steer away from something that would be just a parody in a way or a pastiche um, to something that is totally authentic? I mean, t has a voice of its own. It's not totally authentic, and it couldn't be because... Any, it's a 21st century novel in an 18th century manner, which meant that it was always going to have to be a compromise between, between past and present, something which I hope would make the reader feel that they were time-travelling, but which wouldn't be so verbally off-putting that, that it would alienate you, something which which surreptitiously kind of eased your, your path into a, a past society with past and different social rules. Um, and also something which followed 21st century kind of intuitions about what it's important to pay attention to because the kind of stories we want to tell changes. You know, they change as the centuries go past. Um, and our sense of what the past is changes as well. We, we pick different things out of the past because different things matter um, in rather the same way that in films, for example, the 1920s keeps changing decade by decade depending on, on, on the way that contemporary filmmakers look back. Um, does anyone remember The Sting with Robert Redford and... Um, yep. Okay, that was definitely the 1970s version of the, 19, of the 1920s. It looked quite different 15, 20 years, 20 years later. Um, it, so mine is a 21st century version of the 18th century, and I hope it does feel authentic. But, but beneath, the, beneath the wig is a... Is a it's a terrible metaphor... Beneath the, the wig is a 21st century head. No, wait. You, can, no, you know no, what no, I mean. No. <laughs> yes. I know what you mean. The language in it, though, is, is marvellously robust. Um, and you've obviously, as much as you can, researched in the, the sort of slang, if you like, of the time. And some of these... Again, those of you who haven't read it, uh, phrases and expressions are 
to absolutely roll around the mouth. A flash cully working the inkhorn lay. Um, a gangster dealing in, um, dealing in forged documents. Fiddling a cargo. Um, does, does that need a subtitle? <laughs> the hemp jig. Uh, getting hanged. Yes, conjures up a wonderful thing. And one I used this morning, I told Francis before we came on, uh, to a rather um, recalcitrant Labrador, is flux breath. Which is just disgusting, given that flux is 18th century diarrhoea. Yeah. Um, the sorry. dog looks suitably penitent. I'm um, glad. Um, it's, it's one of... It must... As you say... It was, it was... Also, the other thing about the 18th century novel is that their, their social curiosity goes all the way from kind of gutters up to palaces and, and, and back again. And they really liked the combination of kind of low life and low life and high life kind of gutter and gutter and drawing room um so it's got lots of real 18th century thieves slang in it and also um also tinkling china finger extended language um there is a wonderful multi-volume dictionary of historical slang edited by a man called eric partridge who clearly spent decades just looking for the grossest things that anybody had ever said from about 1600 to about 1900. Um, and, and no, there was, there, were, there was far more kind of wonderful, elaborate, inventively gross stuff I, I could have I put in. Um, I'm really sorry I didn't find a way of referring to Fortune as her mope-eyed ladyship, which I thought was lovely. Um, I'm sure you will in the future. Find I can't something. write another 18th century novel. I've, I've, it's, it's, the, the writing is really deliberately elaborate. It's like a kind of... Um, it's, like, it's like embroidery. It's like one of those 18th century waistcoats covered in little silky flowers and things. Um, and like I said earlier, the way I found I wanted to change the subject, once I'd been elaborate for 350 pages, I wanted to write something really plain and modern and direct from embroidered waistcoat to kind of sensible plastic tablecloth. <laughs> um, Could you give us a taste yeah, of the book? Um, and we talked about Guy Fawkes Night in New York. Um, this is one of the most glorious sort of breathless descriptions of Richard, the hero, um, who has transgressed somewhat. Well, he hasn't. Well, he hasn't really. He's been mistaken for, for yeah. an evil Catholic spy. Um, um, and an extremely drunken mob is chasing him through the streets of New York. Um, um, he has been rescued from the mob by um, Septimus, the governor's, the governor's secretary, um, um, whose sword was enough to hold the mob up long, off long enough for them to start running. Um, but it's 1746. There is no police force. So, um, so they just have to escape. There is no one they can, they can call to for help. Um, and the mob has decided that they represent good entertainment for the evening. And they're, they're not giving up. They've, they've tried hiding in an alleyway, but the mob is still coming after them. Um, I'm going to have to take my glasses off to read this. Um, you all still there? Good. Thank you. Right. At William Street, they were all of a sudden in one of the city's little domains of wealth and luxury. Tall, handsome houses of the newest proportions, white shutters at windows, candelabra lighting moulded ceilings visible patient horses, even a sedan chair at the mounting blocks beside the doors where guests had spent Pope Day far from the bonfire's barbarity. Septimus skidded left, no doubt intending by that means to get onto Duke Street and the shortest way back to Fort George, but he halted after two steps and held his hand up. The pursuit was ahead of them. Coming around the east end of William Street, back they went, 
but the happy baying and hooting was coming from that way too. Intelligently, the pursuers had divided and were coming around from both sides at once, as well as boiling along the alley itself, judging by the way that Bloat Lane had begun to pulse and echo. They were not growing bored. They had found their entertainment for the latter part of the evening, and they meant to make the most of it. The only way left open was ahead up Princess Street, too wide for the preference of anyone seeking concealment, and with the even greater breadth and openness of Broad Street beyond, where public oil lanterns burned on posts, and passers-by on foot and horseback could be seen, of sympathies most doubtful. But needs must, and on the pair of them flew. However, they had not quite crossed the junction when Septimus's attention was arrested by a whistle from above. It was hard to pick out in the gloom up there against a night sky of hurrying cloud, but a figure was running in a precarious crouch along the roof line of the townhouse on the corner opposite, waving something in one hand. Smith, groaning inwardly, assumed at first that the pursuers had somehow got an agile spotter up there to guide them onto their prey from above, but Septimus was waving back, whistling back, and as the roof runner scrambled over the sloping slates of the first roof on Princess Street, Septimus was hopping along beneath, sideways from foot to foot, staring at doorways, gazing up at the sash windows of the floor just below the eaves, the fourth, with an expression of rapid calculation. There, he called, pointing, and the figure stopped against a chimney and threw down what appeared to be a rope. A rope so short, however, that Smith could not see how it could be of any earthly use. It only hung down far enough to dangle just outside the fourth floor window that Septimus had indicated. With the figure motionless in the dark beside the chimney stack and nothing, therefore, to call attention to it, the rope was virtually invisible, a dark thread amidst the dark. Septimus seized Smith by the elbow. Right, in we go, he said, and bounded with him up the marble steps leading to the grand doorway of the house before them, where he hammered furiously on the door knocker. It seemed hideously exposed to remain there, unmoving in plain sight, while the three hubbubs of the pursuit converged for the stretching seconds that it took for the door to be answered. At any moment, the first emissaries of the mob would come view-hallooing over the cobbles. Feet were audible on the stairs inside, though. Septimus sheathed the sabre, drummed his quivering hands on his temples, absurdly adjusted his neckcloth, keys turned inside. But as soon as the first crack of light appeared along the door edge, Septimus shoved with an un-Septimus-like lack of civility, and they burst through into a tiled hall, sending a housemaid reeling. So sorry, said Septimus to the world in general. Up! He added to Smith, good evening, sir, to an astonished red-faced householder, his mouth an O. Shut the door over his shoulder to the maid as they plunged up the treads of a grand oval staircase, elegantly carpeted, radiantly lit, where guests clearly stuffed and basted with dinner were craning out of doorways, round and up, round and up, flashes of dining room where the walnut gleamed, and of a drawing room with a card party where a, a flutter of ladies, having withdrawn from the gentleman, was being teased from the doorway by a moustached officer. I say, said the officer, wondering whether he was supposed to perform some gallant intervention. Sorry, terrible hurry, said Septimus, brushing past. Excuse us, Smith threw in. Your servant, sir, your pardon, madam, coming through. Thank you, thank you. Um, marvellous party, very kind said Smith, trying to smooth somewhat the impression they were making it, helplessly on the verge of laughter at this sudden transition from naked fear to clothed society. This dash as quick as a scene shift from wild black street to the domain of cards and face powder. The trick was to stay close behind. Septimus progressed upwards like an extremely well-mannered fox going through a hen house. In his wake, feathers clucking, dismay, uproar, yet he behaved as if he had such a perfect right to push his way through someone else's house from bottom to top that no one gathered the confidence to protest effectively until he was well past. The twist of the stairs tightened. The carpet beneath their galloping feet gave way to boards. A door presented itself with a simpler, barer flight of staircase beyond. Glancing back down the well, Smith 
saw beneath the spiral of astonished faces tilted up at him that there was a commotion in the hall now with shouts and banging, but that, judging by the banging, the door to the street had not been opened, not yet, anyway. Up the next flight, oil cloth, plain wood, a child's wooden horse, a nursery. Past a nurse with a babe in arms that began reliably to bawl. Last flight, up among the eaves, servants' bedrooms, grey plaster, cold air, truckle beds, along a mean corridor, Septimus counting along the rooms to the right. Last room, door of plain pine, door locked from inside. Septimus rapped on it. No answer, but a faint, sickly. <clears throat> Smith looked back. The temper of the house noise was altering behind them now that the hypnotic effect of Septimus's passing was worn off. Bother, said Septimus. I shall have to send them a note in the morning. And kicked the door open with his pointed black shoe. The woman who had been lying in the bed in the corner with the toothache screamed or tried to, but her jaw was bound up with a grey clout of rags and she could only open her mouth enough to emit a high-pitched... <laughs> she clutched the sheet up to her chin. Come now, mistress, your virtue is perfectly safe, said Septimus reprovingly. We are only interested in your... The last words said in grunts. He having bounded across the room and addressed himself to the casement. The top half of the wooden sash could be forced down to the midpoint of the window, creating a slot two feet high at about chest height. Shall I stop? A bit more? What do you think? I mean, should we... Bit more, tiny bit more. <laughs> there in the darkness outside, the loose end of the rope was swinging down over the guttering at the edge of the roof just above. Alas, the eaves of the house projected outward from window top to gutter, so the rope hung a good yard away and there was not much length to it, perhaps a scant man's height and no knot at the end either to arrest a pair of slipping feet or worse, slipping hands. Four stories down, their pale faces gleaming like bubbles around the edge of a glass of dark wine, the mob ringed the front door, shouting. Shouting through it, for it had still not been opened, the house having learned caution from Smith and Septimus's first invasion. None of the besiegers were looking up. To them, the eaves of the house were deep-shadowed. Septimus cast around for a chair. There was none. Better give me a leg, he said. Standing on Smith's bent knee, he leaned forward over the sash and wriggled forward with his stomach as a fulcrum and his head, chest and outstretched arms projecting free and unsupported into the night air. Smith gripped his coat as he inched forward. The sabre projected awkwardly, clipping Smith's chin in its scabbard. Septimus's hands found the rope. You will forgive the ludicrous posture, he said. And gripping the rope in both fists as tightly as he could, he wriggled the rest of the way over the sill a black secretarial seal entering the ocean, pushed off from the window above 50 or so feet of empty air and swung out to dangle over the street, making an oof of effort. His thin legs kicked, his hands slid, but then they caught and he wrapped himself tight around the fibres. As soon as his weight was full on the rope, he began to rise and the twisted clove hitch he'd made of himself disappeared upwards with further quiet hoofs and oofs where he was scraped on the gutter. What seemed only a couple of seconds later... The rope reappeared empty, an urgent hiss from above. Come on! At this moment, Mr. Smith made the mistake of pausing. <laughs> Very good. I think at that point, I am going to turn the proceedings over to you and ask if you have any questions of the author, or the book, or both. Let's try very hard not to talk about Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Please. There is a microphone, so if you could just raise your hand. Um, I want to, I've got a Scottish accent. I could say, oh, you're my idol. <laughs> but let's not mention Richard Dawkins um, I'm really happy that you've been given so much encouragement to keep writing fiction um, and you've given us a few clues a little bit about your next novel that it's not going to be elaborate it's going to be a plastic tablecloth alright, perhaps not a complete plastic tablecloth but... um, can you give us some more indications of what your next novel is going to be about it's, um, it's a book about South London 
um, which is where the college I work in is, and um, a, a German V2 fell on a branch of Woolworths. Um, I, I walked past the site. It was the single most, most destructive V2 attack of the war, and I walked past it on my way to my office every day when I go to work. Um, and it's a book that starts in 1944 with, with the V2 falling and then runs as London changes through the decades. Or at least it will be. At the moment, I've got as far as 1949. So, because um, I, I seem to have committed myself to finding out about something completely different for virtually every single chapter. So it's being, it's being quite hard going at the moment. But yeah. Yes. Um, the list of things I need to find out about include um, linotype printing machines, um, 1970s reel-to-reel recording technology, um, what it's like working on a suicide prevention um, helpline, um, um, what it's like being a member of a group of, of Nazi skinheads. Um, 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 what it's like being a backing singer, a woman backing singer in, um, um, in Los Angeles in 1979. What it's like doing peripatetic music teaching in London in the 1980s. Um, if you know a resource that would help with... with um, uh, The novel is um, a man um, that comes from a big city and finds himself in a small town. Uh, you are from a big city and you're visiting us in Christchurch. What do you think of our small town? You are not a small town. <laughs> you are a city. And I, I work in London, but I live in Ely, which is technically a city because it's got a cathedral in it. Um, the cathedral is larger than any other building in Ely by about an order of magnitude. Um, um, this is a metropolis. This is a metropolis, and the New York I'm talking about is... It's, it's small enough that I had to stretch it to make the chase scene last. Um, <laughs> It's one of the ways I've had to cheat. All of those are real streets, but um, I've had to kind of lengthen all of them on the quiet. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, you could run from one end of mid-18th century New York to the other in about five minutes. Um, there is... Sometime in the 1820s or 30s, there was a very, very old man in New York, the oldest living inhabitant, who was 96 or something. His name was David Grimm. And somebody intelligently went and got him to, to draw as much as he remembered of the New York of his, of his boyhood. So we have, um, we have David Grimm's map of the New York he remembers with tiny little hand drawings of what the main buildings looked like. Um, and it had six churches and a town hall um, um, from whose balcony George Washington would read the Declaration of Independence 30-something um, years later. Um, at Wall Street um, was a street and had been named because it was the northern edge of the city, but it had grown a little bit more by the time I'm, I'm talking about. Um, really, it's a village. It's a village. It's a village with the apparatus of a of a city because. If you wind back, imagine Christchurch in about 1860. When 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 is the founding? 1832, four. Yeah, what you need is the point where 
where somebody has, has got off a ship and said, um, we need to have a court, um, we need a chief justice, um, um, we need a post office. Um, now, quickly, somebody grow some food. Um, that's, I mean, that, that's, they've got a little further than that, but no, I, I do not feel I have, I have come to us. I want to ask you about um, the first sentence of the novel and whether you wrote that first. <laughs> yes. And presumably you were signalling to us with that first sentence the type of novel it was going to be. The first sentence of the, of the novel runs right, along, right, right over the first page yes, and into the second marvellous. one. it's um, marvellous. It's a very long first sentence. Um, yes, I was. I was. I was meaning the first sentence to be a kind of, a sort of, a time machine in itself, something that, that clearly transported you to somewhere where you would have to pay a slightly different kind of attention. So it, it's a kind of, it's a statement of intent. It's, it gets easier after the first sentence. And I did in fact write a first sentence that was twice as long as that to begin with and thought, steady on. This is, <laughs> this is a bit excessive. Um, it's also a kind of calling card. It's supposed to say, you're going to like this book if you like this kind of thing. And it's going to be a bit less extreme after this, but if you don't like this kind of thing at all, then, then, then you should move along the shelf and pick up something else. So did you decide that you wanted to write an 18th century kind of novel and then look for something to write about? Or did you want to write about New York and then think, oh, I'll do this in this way? It, I had... It, it, what I meant about the jigsaw pieces fitting together was that I found that I had several different intentions or ambitions or, or things I, I wanted which turned out to fit together and to be, to be the same thing. And I wanted to write about tiny New York because it was kind of ironic and pleasing. And I wanted to write about a point where um, where the kind of what was British and what was American hadn't split yet, where there was still one identity with strains in it that was going to branch but hadn't done. And I wanted to write something that took advantage of the time delay in crossing the Atlantic to produce a kind of a mystery where somebody had to wait in suspense. And I wanted to, I wanted to write something with a genuinely difficult and bad-tempered heroine. Um, um, because I was slightly annoyed with the way that in historical romance, wherever people are rude to each other, it's just a straightforward sign that they really care about each other deep down. I wanted to write somebody who was just... just acerbic. Yes. But again, acerbic so often seems... It's not just that Tabitha has strength of character, though she does. I and mean, she's quite nasty, um, and she's, she's, she's not a nice person. There are good reasons why she's not a nice person. But and I love her. But I'm aware that she divides readers. And there are people who, people who loathe her and can't see why Smith bothers with her. <laughs> there are also a few readers who think she's great but can't see why she bothers with Smith, which... Go figure. One more. The, you spoke at the beginning about the, the strength of the royalist feeling yep. in New York at the time. You also touched on the fact of the Dutch settlement. The Dutch settlement, I understand, was actually quite large and influential in New York at that time. Yep, about half the people. Yeah. Were there any tensions, were there tensions between their background, their family, their country and the royalist overlay? 
not as much as you'd think because that had been kind of New Amsterdam had turned into New York in the 1690s so 50 odd years before the time the time I was I was writing about so again a generation had had passed um and and the younger generation of, of Dutch inhabitants don't speak Dutch to each other. They only do it to their parents or when listening to interminably long Dutch sermons on, on, on Sunday morning. Um, they are already in the process of, of turning from a kind of an ethnic group into just the oldest kind of geological layer of New Yorkers. They are turning into Vanderbilts and Roosevelts and the names that we don't even think of as Dutch surnames, although although they are, just because they become kind of American American aristocracy. Um, like um, Roosevelts, for example. Yes, exactly. Um, um, also, both the, both the English settlers and the Dutch are Protestants. Um, and the people they're really frightened of are the, are the French, because um, Quebec is still French. And there is effectively a slow-running world war going on between kind of what they think of. They think, they think that Protestantism and and kind of parliamentary government are one cause and Catholicism and tyranny are another cause. Um, and one of the reasons for their intense royalism is that they think of the kind of good German constitutional kings of Britain as being embodiments of liberty, whereas wicked French kings are embodiments of... One of the things that's really surprising is that they are talking about the evil French king in 1746 in virtually identical terms to them talking about evil George III 30, 30 years later. It is as if there is a kind of deep well of, of kind of suspicion, almost paranoia, waiting that, that as American history continues will just be transferred from, from object to object. They are constantly being proud of their liberty and convinced that somebody is about is about to steal it from them. Um, you can trace the way they're talking about Louis the fifteenth in seventeen forty six is the same way they're talking about George the Third in seventeen seventy six and is the same way that they are talking about um, their own presidents later on when they when when they when when they get paranoid, which they do at regular at regular intervals, so paranoia about Abraham Lincoln as a tyrant about um, about um, FDR as a tyrant, about Obama as a tyrant, slightly mad right wing kind of stuff about about Obama sounds like people denouncing the King of France in one thousand seven hundred and forty six for his for his sinister alien designs so there are, there are some continuities here. And um, the household Smith finds himself presenting his, his bill to is, is, is a kind of combination Anglo-Dutch household. Um, it, it's a partnership of one Dutch merchant and, and one English merchant. English at this point, anyway. Yeah. And let us not forget the present resident of the White House is a New Yorker, of course, which... He is. Uh, sort of. <laughs> I, I hadn't... I had meant, when I, when I wrote the book, to be, to be part of what's serious about it is, is that there is supposed to be a reflection on the, the kind of... the darkness and the paranoia, which is the flip side of... of, of the American story of, 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 of liberty and virtue. Um, but I had not expected what happened um, in 2016 to happen. <laughs> and I wish the book were not topical, but it accidentally seemed to have become slightly, slightly so. Um, but, yeah. Would anybody else like to ask anything? We've got, we got time for one more question. 
before the moderator's glasses thump down on the table. <laughs> Francis, thank you so much. It's been hugely interesting and great pleasure to have you talk about this marvellous book. And it is a marvellous book. I do urge anybody to, to read it. And the art of the novel is certainly not dead after you've finished it. And thank you for writing it. Thank you, Thank you for being here. Um, I have a neighbour who comes from Boston, and I mentioned this to him, and he said, I really am very disappointed that a writer of Mr. Stafford's ability would not write about Boston. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I did a lot of my research in Boston, because <laughs> Boston didn't prosper as much as New York, and it also didn't have regular fires. So there are far more 18th century buildings left in, in Boston. So various bits of Mr. Smith's New York are actually copied from, 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 from Boston. But I needed, I needed it to be Manhattan that he, was, <laughs> that he was in. It had to be somewhere where all of those little lanes with royal names were later going to yeah. have yeah. gigantic glass temples of... of, of you know, I'm sure Bostonians yes. will forgive you. Francis, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>